It's August 1st, 2008. The Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope is launched. The Eurovision Song Contest has taken place in Serbia and is subsequently won by Russia. It's a leap year. I am 13, and I've spent the last hour and a half nervously preparing for an event that at least feels like it may change my life. I've just spent the better part of that time painstakingly straightening my hair, long and brown, in case you were worried I wouldn't tell you. And I've slicked on a mix of expired drugstore makeup and Victoria's Secret body splash that could make angels weep. I've picked out my best outfit, a fetching plaid skirt with tattered edges and black lace, a white tank top under a pinstripe short sleeve blazer, and a black satin ribbon tied around my throat for flavor. It's 10.30 p.m. on a Friday. And my dad just knocked on my bedroom door, asking if I'm ready to go. My hands shake as I grab my mint green cell phone off my dresser, and they continue to shake long after I've climbed into the back seat behind my older brother, who, of course, got shotgun. Pulling into the darkened strip mall in dusty Oakley, California, population on the downside of 35,000, my eyes are glued to the shocking glow of a bustling Barnes & Noble. It seems almost obscene against the backdrop of the sleeping strip mall and beyond empty plots of parched earth where shiny new developments are supposed to go, but never will. Practically vibrating in my seat, I watch other teens climb out of cars and race toward the red and black bannered windows, their dark graphic tees this little too far away to make out the lettering I knew was proudly proclaiming what side of the romantic line they fell on. I don't remember parking <laughs> or getting out of the car. I'm sure my brother asked if I was excited, uh, both to tease and to probably gauge real interest. I'm sure my dad shook his head as I walked through the doors and into the store, lit bright as day, and stopped to stare wide-eyed at the mass of people inside, at the streamers hanging from the ceiling and the blast of muse from the speakers. These things must have happened, but all I really remember was being greeted by a bookseller I knew and how embarrassed I was to be noticed in the throng of black and red-clad teens massing around tables of games and snacks. In 2021, the scene feels more fevered and incomprehensible than it did then, but only by a slim margin. At 13, I was as painfully socially awkward as the next person, the idea of sharing my overflowing enthusiasm for such a maligned, <laughs> joked-about, inherently girly franchise with so many in front of my brother? Looking back, I'm shocked I made it through the door. As it happens, we didn't stay long. I entered a raffle, lost, and picked up a Team Jacob bookmark from a pile on a table as I milled around, avoiding eye contact with anyone. Unfortunately, my satin choker didn't prove to be a talisman for courage. My dad hovered as my brother went to browse, or perhaps gawk, at the spectacle. Together, we watched the countdown clock suspended over the YA section as it ticked ever closer to midnight. One thing I'll never forget is the cheer that went up when the clock finally struck that magic hour. I remember <laughs> blushing, sweating a little, too terrified of being laughed at to join in. I was just so excited, though. So excited that I'd staked out my spot by the register while everyone else played the games run by gleeful booksellers in various team t-shirts, their lanyards heavy with the red and black buttons sporting quotes like, And so the lion fell in love with the lamb. Or, Do I dazzle you? My strategy worked. I was one of the first in line, and I had my precious cargo in my arms as I walked out the door not ten minutes after midnight. As we left, I glimpsed a line that ran out the door and around the side of the squat building. I sat in the back of my dad's car. I opened to the first page, squinting in the dark, catching words in the flash of passing headlights, and thought, finally. It was August 2nd, 2008, and I held Breaking Dawn in my hands. Finally. Hi and welcome to the Kingdom of Thirst podcast. My name is Abigail Kelly. I'm a bookseller, a writer, fan of romance novels, and today we're going to talk about Twilight. Sometimes 
Sometimes I wonder if there is an English-speaking person on this earth who hasn't heard of Twilight. Seriously, think about it. What other books can you name that have that sort of clout? Harry Potter? Maybe Lord of the Rings? That dude Shakespeare probably makes the list. The Bible, I guess, if you're into that sort of thing. And then there's Twilight. Even the most pop-culturally ignorant of us know something about the Twilight Saga. You, listener, have definitely heard of it. You might even know the name of the author, Stephanie Meyer. That's Stephanie with three E's, by the way. No A. Even publications like Bustle get that wrong. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Bustle. Really? Can't fact check that? It's a testament to how many hours I spent on her blog as a lonely 13-year-old that I never forgot how she emphasized it. How she told the story of how much her parents wanted a boy they called Stephen and only to get a Stephanie when the time came. Even lacking my unhealthy fixation, all you journos out there should be able to do some basic fact-checking. Yeesh. Anyway. You probably know the basics. In the Pacific Northwest, a teenage girl meets a mysterious young man who turns out to be a vampire. There's sparkling, there's werewolves, there's sparkling werewolf-vampire-human love triangles, there's a baby-tears-itself-out-of-the-womb scene, there's copious Mormon subtext. All the normal stuff. Like I said, you already know this. When I thought about this episode, and I have thought about it pretty much from the moment the podcast came to be a year ago, I couldn't get past that point. Everyone already knows about Twilight. What ground do I have to cover? What joke can I make that countless YouTubers, late-night hosts, satirists, and profound wits on Twitter.com have not? It took me nearly a year to come up with the answer to that question. Twilight changed my life. In that small truth, we find the hook of this episode. The raft on which we will sail through familiar, turbulent waters. Twilight changed my life. Probably changed yours too, even if you can't quite see the small ripples of the farthest edges of that vast ocean as they lap at your toes. See, the Twilight Saga changed publishing. It changed how bookstores are laid out. It changed the checks given to authors. It changed the conversation around media aimed at young women. It changed more than you know, and perhaps more than it had any right to. In an effort to understand that change, I asked you, my listeners, to submit your answers to a series of open-ended questions. Today, you are going to hear some of those answers, alongside excerpts from articles, snippets of interviews, and from Stephanie herself. We are going to walk through the history of Twilight with a quick step, making pit stops at points of interest, with the goal of managing a paltry overview of that great heaving ocean, to understand its scope its complexity, its strange, sparkly ecosystems. And like all classic literary works, we're going to begin with a dream. Back to really easily in their heads. I have a question about the writing of um, Twilight. You said that you had a dream that um, was the meadow scene. And how did the whole story in the world of Twilight evolve from around that? Like, where did the idea of vampires and, you know, Bella and Edward and their story develop from that? See, and I wish I could answer that question better because it'd be nice to say this is how it works. But I don't know why I was dreaming about vampires because I certainly hadn't read or watched anything about them. Um, And then I didn't know where the story was going. I didn't have an outline. I sat down. I wrote out that scene that just had captured my I couldn't think about anything else you know here was this guy and he was in love with her but he wanted to kill her and and I was just so caught up in that and then when I finished that scene and I was just going to write it so I wouldn't forget it then I was like okay but what would have happened next and and how would they have gone about their lives from that point on and and I just started writing and I didn't know what I was going to write next it wasn't like I said and I'm going to get to this scene and then I'll get to this one no I was just writing it and just kind of came at the time, which is so much fun that just never happens again. That's a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. That's Stephanie, a freshly minted New York Times bestselling author, sitting in a garden with a group of fans aged 14 to 30. She's big, but she's not like big, big yet. 
Twilight is not yet the massive box office juggernaut it will become, and she has not yet walked red carpets lined with screaming, hysterical teenagers pressed cheek to jowl. She is not yet polished, and she's not yet defensive on her guard. It's hard to imagine what a person who will go on to make a staggering amount of money and sell hundreds of millions of copies of her books worldwide would have to feel truly defensive about. How bad could the criticism truly be? Well, I mean, reading is still popular. It's just a question of what you read. I mean, Twilight is huge. Those damn... Fifty Shades of Grey books. Uh, were Garbage! Now, Garbage! Sorry, did I just say that out loud? No, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. And, and, you know. That was a talk given by Stephen King at UMass in 2012. The man yelling, Garbage! His MC. 2012. Four years after the release of the last book. To his credit, I'll say that Mr. King at least looked a little embarrassed by the outburst. I'm not going to repeat much of the criticism Twilight received pre-2018. Later in the episode, we will talk about the valid critiques of Twilight's use of native stories and the concerns about glamorizing abusive behavior, as well as other things. But for right now, I'll say that this criticism was broadly aimed at the biggest target, the popularity of the series with teenage girls. You can fill in the blanks. In some ways, it feels fitting that Twilight began with a dream. It was something that came to Stephanie. It existed independently and, through its massive popularity, became its own breathing entity. It eclipsed <laughs> her. And with the release of the movies, even itself, then it was eclipsed again by its evil clone, Fifty Shades of Grey, and its subsequent blockbuster spin-offs. In the same way, for many of us, Twilight became its own monster. It consumed us. For Laura Von Holt, host of the Mermaid podcast and romance author, it became something of an obsession. I first heard about the Twilight books from a woman that I worked with, and she said, you have to read these. I didn't really understand anything she said when she told me about them, but I said, sure. So I got all the books, I started reading them, and I was like, I'm not really into this Bella Edward thing, and yet I cannot stop reading, and I have to read all of them all at once. And then when it got to the part where Bella got pregnant on the honeymoon with a half-vampire baby, I was like, stop everything this is amazing i this is so bananas i am so into this and now i want to read like seven more books about people who are pregnant with vampire babies so then i was like sold and then i like retroactively i got really into the whole series and then when the movies came out it was all over i would go to cocktail parties and like stop the conversation because i needed to like give my opinions about twilight and i wanted to hear other people's opinions about them too and so i feel like the movies really set it off for me because then i got to see that vampire baby like i don't i don't know it like it awakened something within me and i I just think it set me free it set me free what i didn't know i needed in my life was this half vampire baby See, when I say that Twilight was eclipsed by its own fame, I mostly mean those movies. Indulge me for a moment and close your eyes. Please, God, do not do this if you're driving. I'm going to say a few words associated with Twilight, and I want you to remember what springs to mind first when I do. Ready? Okay. Bella Swan. Forks, Washington. Where you been, Loka? Did you picture the fey-faced, heavy-lidded Kristen Stewart? Did you see a whitewashed house on a tree-lined lane cast in a pall by a heavy-handed blue filter? Did you see a young, bewigged Taylor Lautner? If you didn't, congrats. You're very special. Uh, your medal should descend from the ceiling via doves uh, at any moment. If you did, 
then you're just like the rest of us plebs. You pictured scenes and people from the Twilight films, a series of blockbuster movies that shattered records, made and broke careers, and gave us the eternal gift of the baseball scene. I'm not going to harp on the cultural relevance of the Twilight films here. Incredibly, they have more think pieces written about them than the books themselves do. When the 10th anniversary of the first movie came around, you could not throw a tree or spit a glob of venom without hitting a 10-year retrospective or a listicle about them. For the books? Not so much. The reason I bother to bring them up at all, really, is twofold. For one thing, almost every single person who sent in answers to my questions responded with, well, I heard about Twilight when I saw the movie for the first time, and or some variation therein. For another, it's my firm belief that much of the sour opinions currently circulating around Twilight in the year of our Lord 2021 are a strange Myers monster of written canon and cinematic canon, which, mind you, was a loose grab bag of picked over trail mix passed between several directors, actors, rooms of writers, and sticky-fingered business people. For instance, I didn't hear a word about Bella's relatable averageness and cardboard self-insert character until after the movies came out. Let's be honest here. It wasn't Kristen's best acting. Whether you want to blame the director, the source material, or bad creative choices, the fact remains that movie Bella was a strangely stilted creature made ambulatory by gasps and woodlice. Book Bella is no perfect example of literary mastery either, but to say she is nothing, like so many do, is wrong. Bella Swan is a young woman raised by a, quote, flighty mother, who, at the start of her story, is abandoning her to pursue a fresh start with a new minor league baseball-playing husband in Florida after a lifetime of making her daughter the adult in the relationship. Bella is about to move in with her father, a man she barely knows, in a town full of people who gawk at her and touch her hair. She is then dropped into a world where, despite the odds, she has even less power than she did before. Not only is she ignorant of the rules of the game she is suddenly playing, the stakes and nuance of which are kept hidden from her by the man she loves, she is physically weaker. They don't even need to sleep, for God's sake. What are they up to all night? On the most fundamental level, she is lacking life experience. But compared to vampires who have lived hundreds of years and who are playing a game she does not know, she is also lacking an immortal's life experience. The power imbalance, let's be honest, is bananas. Bella of the books is sassy in the extreme. She's smart as a whip and frequently takes Edward to task for being a nosy flip-floppy asshole. She knows her worth. And then she enters into a world where she is less in every conceivable way, where she is literally food. She says, yo, fuck that. I'm going to be equal even if it kills me. If Bella is flattened, it is in her collision with the Cullen family, with vampires, not by some invention of a scheming, or inept, depending on your view, author attempting to be more marketable to yearning tween girls. And in that flattening, her character is realized because she knows she deserves better than to be squeezed between Edward and Jacob's ideas of what her life should be, and fights for a power that every single person she loves attempts to deny her again and again. To say that Bella is a character made of cardboard exclusively to sell books that appeal to teenage girls is not only cynical in the extreme, it is a misrepresentation of the text. I think author Jodie McAllister put it best when she wrote this short piece on Twilight's main character for BuzzFeed. This might be an unpopular opinion, but one of the things that always stuck with me about Twilight is its heroine. 
Bella Swan has been heavily criticized over her lifespan as a damsel in distress, as always needing to be saved, and as passive. And it's true that Bella is definitely in a position of little power in the series. Not only is she a human in a cast of vampires and werewolves, she's a, also a girl in a circle populated by magical patriarchal boys. However, what Bella does, and this is what really struck me when I first encountered the series, and something I thought about a lot when I was writing Pearl, the heroine of my Valentine series, is negotiate her way to a position of power. Realistically, she has no power, but she knows what she wants. For instance, she wants to be a vampire, and she wants to have sex with Edward. Having identified these goals, and we can criticize these goals all we like, but the fact is this girl knows what she wants, Bella doesn't ever stop pursuing them, despite the protestations of Edward, Jacob, and assorted others. And she gets them, too, even if we probably all could have done without that horrifying childbirth vamp transformation scene. In short, I don't think she's passive at all. Despite having no power, Bella negotiates her way to what she wants, which includes, as it turns out, power of her own. Speaking of criticism, I don't think it will surprise anyone to hear that, in many ways, Twilight didn't age well. From author Amalia Dillon. The thing that kept me glued to the pages of those books was just, I was absolutely mystified by Edward. What on earth was he even thinking at any point in those books? That's a good question. It's one many people have asked, and over a dozen clickbait YouTube videos with watery-eyed relationship therapists have sought to answer. It's the subject of too many Tumblr posts to accurately count, even if I cared to. It's an easy excuse to turn your nose up at the entire series. Understandably, if all I heard about was how nuts a guy was, I wouldn't want to spend four extremely, wildly, brutally long books with him either. Lucky for us, we do actually have an answer to what was going inside Edward's head now. In fact, we have a whole book detailing the events of Twilight from his beleaguered, melancholy perspective. After 10 years, Midnight Sun finally led us into Edward Cullen's mind. Too bad the place is a dump. Seriously, the man's insane. He's an admitted serial killer with a stick shoved so far up his ass he can play the flute every time he breathes. He's controlling, he's egotistical, he's deliberately keeps Bella in the dark about things that can and very nearly do kill her. He sucks, man. As an aside, if you couldn't put it together, I'm not Team Edward. I was, until the second book, when he left her, quote, for her own good, to wander alone in a forest for hours until she fell, catatonic, into the undergrowth and had to be found by search and rescue. Thanks, Sam. Seriously, fuck that guy. And speaking of the movies, if you've seen them, I want you to recall that scene in the second film when Carlisle, Edward's erstwhile doctor daddy, stitches up Bella's hand in his office. Why in the world was she holding onto his shirt? Why was he standing between her legs? Seriously, they had more sexual chemistry in that one scene than anyone else had in the entire... Okay, I'm Team Carlisle. I'm, I'm Team Carlisle. Leave me alone. But putting aside my personal feelings for Dr. Daddy, is Edward really that bad? Yes. Wicked, definitely yes. What he isn't, however, is much different from any other romance hero, YA or adult, of his time. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Pick up a romance from pre-2015 with gloves and protective eyewear, kids, because that shit is gonna do something nasty. Nothing about Twilight is healthy, romance-wise. Edward and Jacob exhibit all the stalkery, consent-blind, misogynistic bullshit that no one in their right mind would ever think was okay in real life. But it's not real life. It's melodrama. And boy, is it sweet. You can call the behavior exhibited in Twilight as abusive or off-putting or grotesque as you like. You're probably correct. That doesn't mean it's not entertaining, though, does it? 
Fiction, in many ways, and in particular for the young, is about transformation and exploration, about outsized characters that examine the parts of life we are only tentatively peeking at in the real world. Twilight handles the extremes of teen love, of sexuality, of heartbreak, of isolation, of adulthood in huge, ridiculous ways. And for better or worse, it works. I'm calling this next section, For the Love of a Khaki Skirt. You can probably guess where this is going. I'm going to read an excerpt from Twilight, Um, so sorry in advance. I ended up in only my skirt, long, khaki-colored, still casual. I put on the dark blue blouse he'd once complimented. A quick glance in the mirror told me my hair was entirely impossible, so I pulled it back into a ponytail. Okay, I bounced down the stairs. I'm decent. He was waiting at the foot of the stairs, closer than I'd thought, and I bounded right into him. He steadied me, holding me a careful distance away for a few seconds before suddenly pulling me closer. Wrong again, he murmured in my ear. You are utterly indecent. No one should look so tempting. It's not fair. So... One of the criticisms people have for Twilight is its painfully overt Christian overtones. To be honest, I mostly miss that as a teen. Too swept up in the tapestry, I suppose. As an adult, oh boy howdy, it's hard to gloss over. I'm not going to comment here on Stephanie Meyer being Mormon. That's been beaten to death aplenty by people more thoughtful and well-researched than I. What I will say is that when one of the main themes of your book is that you can't have sex until you are married, and even then, being too horny about it will force God to put a vampire baby in your belly that will snap your spine and eat its way out of you, it's hard to miss that lesson. The complete lack of any LGBTQ rep and, until the very last book, an entirely blindingly white cast of characters is just icing on a nasty little gas station cupcake. There are, of course, many metaphors to be drawn from Twilight's themes. One of my favorites is that in Bella's marriage to Edward, she symbolically dies. No longer a swan, but a cullen. No longer a child, but a woman. No longer a girl, but a wife and mother. This is reinforced when she literally dies, leaving every single shred of her old life and family behind her. No longer human, but vampire. It's pretty gross. However, Worse than the squeaky conversations about sex and identity and how it can put a vampire baby in you if you enjoy it just a little too much, is the line Stephanie draws between Native American men and wild animals. I'm honestly not sure what I can say here that people smarter and more eloquent than me haven't. It's bad. Like, really, really bad. Having one of your main plot points in your book be based on appropriated native stories and then making those native characters actually animals that, should they lose their temper, can and will maul the women around them, it's it's just really bad. To add insult to injury, the Quileute tribe received no financial compensation for their unwilling fame or the use of their name and stories. None. The Quileute people, thrust into the limelight by someone who willfully appropriated their stories, received not a penny of what you paid for that Team Jacob or Wolfpack shirt. From an opinion piece in the New York Times by Angela R. Riley called Sucking the Quileute Dry, Twilight has made all things Quileute wildly popular. Nordstrom.com sells items from Quileute hoodies to charms bearing a supposed Quileute werewolf tattoo. And a tour company hauls busloads of fans onto the Quileute Reservation daily. Yet the tribe has received no payment for this commercial activity. Meanwhile, half of Quileute families still live in poverty. It's important to point out that the outside uses of the Quileute name, from the Twilight books to the tattoo jewelry, are quite likely legal. American intellectual property laws, except in very specific circumstances, do not protect indigenous people's collective cultural property. 
Ikuyut tribe deserve better than to be props in any one story. They deserve all the dignity and respect we can offer, as well as real financial support. Currently, they are raising money to move their school and other vital buildings out of a potential tsunami zone. Yeah, a tsunami zone. One good earthquake in a school full of children, as well as many of their elders, could be lost. If you have enjoyed Twilight, I urge you to donate to mthg.org, the link for which will be in the episode notes. The cost of a paperback copy of Twilight is $16.99 US dollars. Maybe start there. If you can, please do donate. Despite all of the earned and not so well-earned criticism, the 2000s were, by and large, the era of punching down whenever possible, Twilight had one hell of an impact. In no place is that more apparent than the YA section of your local bookshop. Now, I had grand intentions for the section of the script, Ah, yes, I'll find all the stats on how much Twilight sold and how it changed advances for authors and its lasting impact on the genre, I thought, forgetting that, like everything else in publishing, the few numbers that do exist uh, are poorly cited and anecdotal at best, and then everyone else just doesn't really want to talk about it. So, uh, unfortunately, I can't give you more than those anecdotes, most of which are from my fellow booksellers and the mostly decent people on Twitter.com. Here's the simplest breakdown, then. In publishing, there are two epochs, BT and AT, before Twilight and after Twilight. Now, Stephanie Meyer didn't start the YA boom, as it would come to be known, but she did light a match and throw it into a pre-prepared barrel of highly flammable body glitter. You can throw a few titles like Harry Potter and Sweet Valley High and The Outsiders and go ask Alice into that barrel too. Together, those heavy hitters slowly expanded the young adult section of the bookshop, the advances for their fellow YA and middle grade authors increasing at a roughly similar pace. What Twilight did was finally fill that barrel to overflowing and set it on fire, I guess. I might have lost the metaphor somewhere. Anyway, what I'm saying is, in the AT, you can thank Twilight and the books that quickly followed, like The Hunger Games, for the multiple bays of YA novels for you to browse. Twilight forced people to concede real, physical space to what was predominantly a young female audience, considered one of the least desirable groups, but now fully understood to be one of the single most profitable. Speaking of profits, when I mentioned those advances earlier, man, I really wish I could give you solid evidence of this. But again, all I have to go on is anecdotes from authors who have made flippant remarks about the changing industry online. I don't doubt them, though, when they say that Twilight made much bigger advances possible. In a time when everyone was looking for the next cash cow, and when the proof of that possibility was viewable as soon as you walked into your local BNN, yeah, contract negotiations would get a little more cutthroat, the power balance shifting ever so slightly in the author's favor. My YA novels have all been hot garbage, but I'm rooting for all of you authors out there. Get those checks, baby. From illustrator Paige Hughes. I've seen the movies a couple of times as an adult. As a teen, I got on the bandwagon of making fun of it. Not harshly, but I would joke with my friends about it or would make comments here and there. I think Twilight was made fun of for the wrong reasons, though. It was made fun of because it was a thing that most girls slash women enjoyed. And, well, we can't have that. Now I make fun of Twilight because of the writing and the movie effects can be cringy. But if someone invited me to watch it again, I would say yes. Ah, the Twilight Renaissance. Or as I like to call it, Twilight in the time of COVID. In 2020, as you may have heard, the world went to shit. It'd been on its way for a while, yeah, but being locked in your home for nearly a year has a way of, I don't know, forcing people to confront the worst in themselves and in the media they consume. Perhaps miraculously, perhaps with clear-eyed calculation, Netflix dropped 
all of the Twilight movies onto its streaming service on July 16th, 2021. What resulted became known as the Twilight Renaissance, a period of frenzied fan reclamation and retcon of TikToks and decades-late hot takes that truly began to stretch its pale, marble-hard limbs in the halcyon days of 2018 and emerged fully formed like a plague doctor out of a potato pile in 2021. It ushered in the publication of the long-awaited Midnight Sun, Twilight, but from Edward's entirely batshit perspective, that Stephanie Meyer began a decade ago, but set aside after it was leaked online by a friend. That, in itself, is another story, and perhaps a future episode of this podcast. The battle cry of the Renaissance, though? Not, what team are you on? But, God, what a waste! Instead of Team Edwards duking it out with Team Jacobs over who really deserved Bella, this new wave rode a tide of pure, uncut, queer indignation. People loved the premise of Twilight, the world, the stakes, the sheer cheesiness of it, the melancholy, the angst. But they thought, where am I? Where are my friends? What the hell is a babe like Rosalie doing as a straight girl? As of the writing of this script, there are thousands of queer Twilight rewrites and alternate universe stories on Archive of Our Own, the world's premier center for fanfic, and the victor over fanfiction.net, whose walking corpse we remember fondly even as we refuse to let it in our house. Bella and Rosalie are a popular pick, for sure, followed by Edward and Jacob, and then Bella and Alice. Seriously, y'all, there's some good stuff out there, even if most of it is tagged with some variation of... I hate this series, but I love the character, so here's a 200,000 word fic about it, Elmeo. In the way that the movies took Twilight from the hands of Stephanie Meyer all those years ago, the Twilight Renaissance has taken itself out of her universe entirely. It walks independently with a jaunty step toward a gayer, less white sunrise. Also, as an endnote here, it's fucked up that Jasper, Edward's hot cowboy older brother, was a confederate. Really, Stephanie? Really? Anyway, moving on. From the author C.M. Nascosta. The other thing I've noticed is a resurgence of Twilight fiction, although this time around it is being couched in terms of, I'm gonna rewrite this and fix the terrible non-feminist creepy possessive yada yada blah 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 elements of that icky original book. You're writing fan fiction. Embrace it for what it is. And notice that fan is the first part of that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing so, because fanfiction is meant to be transformative. It's meant to help people process their own trauma or insecurities or whatever it is they need to express through writing. But we should always be recognizing the reasons why we're doing the things we do, especially when we are doing them as adults. If you feel compelled to write Bella and Edward's love story as a 35-year-old woman, have at it. But acknowledge the fact that you are now viewing this story through a completely different lens as you might have done, probably did, more than a decade ago. We can acknowledge the fault within the story and the writing without descending to the lowest common denominator of mockery. So I have a complicated relationship with fanfiction. I love it. I'm endlessly grateful for it. Without fanfiction, I would not be who I am today in a very very real sense. Because of that love, I am protective of it and the people who make it. If you don't know what I'm talking about or are only passingly familiar with it, here's a quick breakdown of the subject. Fan fiction is the creation of works of fiction based on another person or person's intellectual property. It is generally not monetized, entirely free to access, and broadly speaking, romantic. The story I always heard was that fanfic as we know it really began with Spock and Kirk fans writing erotic stories and zines way back in the day. As soon as the internet came around, fanfic followed. Words flowing across message boards and shitty, hard-to-read websites and blogs. In the decades since, fanfic moved to places like LiveJournal and Tumblr, as well as boutique websites that catered to only a single character or relationship. As an aside here, one of those boutique websites is called Twilighted. And let me tell you guys, it is 
Incredible. A work of early 2000s internet art. It is something to behold, and God bless, it is still up. Please, please look up Twilight It. Big aggregate sites like fanfiction.net and Archive of Our Own spring up as well, and it is there that most of this free, passion-driven work can be found today. To sum it up, fanfic is the work of dedicated fans, some of whom put out hundreds of thousands of words a year for free just because they like a thing so much and want to share that enthusiasm with others. So yeah, I'm protective of it. I started reading fanfiction back when all the stories online had disclaimers ahead of every chapter. They usually went something a little like this. Disclaimer, I do not own or claim rights to any of the characters or settings below. I make no money off of this work. All rights belong to... and so on and so forth. If that seems weird, it's because it is. At this time, on fanfiction.net, there was also a note at the top of the homepage that informed every visitor to the site that a select group of authors would not tolerate any fan works based on their property, and should any appear, they would be taken off of the site post-haste. Does that also sound strange? Well, blame Anne Rice. Way back when. Miss Rice once benefited from a huge active fan base of fanfic writers, enough to send them advanced reader copies and be in direct contact with her publishers. Until one day, Miss Rice's lawyers sent a cease and desist letter to the people running those fan sites, kicking off a litigious scare whose ripples would be felt for decades. We now understand fanfiction to be covered under the fair use laws, but back then? It was the Wild West of the internet, and no one had bothered to test these things yet. Even writing this, a shiver of disgust crawls up my spine at the thought of someone going after their own fan base for spending their own time and money to create work that promotes the original better than any paid promo ever could. In the here and now, People like the folks behind the archive of our own have come together to pool resources and put up legal defenses so this sort of thing can't happen again. You young folk out there putting your fanfiction on Patreon and Wattpad? The first time I heard that, there was fanfiction authors out there daring to make real money off of their work? My eyes almost popped out of my head. For those of us who lived this time, who felt the very real fear that someone you admired would sue you for loving their work, not simply because it stole intellectual property, but perhaps because the author didn't agree with, say, you making two sexy vampires extremely super duper wicked gay, that kind of paranoia lingers. You can say that I'm not a fan of Miss Rice. She's not the only author who has been outspoken about their distaste for fanfiction. And really, go take a nap, all of you. But she's the one I most ardently resent. Unfortunately, that resentment isn't limited to litigious authors. You might have guessed that I'm taking a roundabout route to E.L. James and her work, Fifty Shades of Grey. You're right. From Forbes. Bella Swan is drafted into an interview with reclusive, enigmatic Edward Cullen, multimillionaire CEO of his company. It's an encounter that will change her life irrevocably, leading her to dark realms of desire. Sound familiar? The characters are the lovers in Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, but the premise is the same as Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James. The erotic trilogy, originally titled Master of the Universe, was posted as a Twilight fanfiction on fanfiction.net under the pen name Snow Queen's Ice Dragon in August 2009. Yeah, yeah, so it was fanfic first. Big whoop. That's not what gets in my craw. It's not even the writing. I've read both way better and way, way worse. The reason my hackles raise every single time an author unashamedly publishes their fanfic, honestly, it feels a little bit like a threat. How? Well, what would happen if one day Stephanie Meyer were to decide that, you know what, screw this lady who copied every single thing I wrote, including Midnight Sun, and made millions off of it. 
One good, long court case later, and we're back to Fanfic's place as a free haven for youth to discover the joys of pure, self-driven creative writing being threatened. And listen, I get it. Sometimes you start writing something as one thing, and then poof, it changes into something totally new. I get it. I do. And I do want to support my fellow authors in their success. But the fear, man, the fear's real. I know that fans own the copyright to their transformative works. But I'll never forget Anne Rice or the fear that ran cold and sharp through so many otherwise loving corners of the internet. Like I said, my feelings are complicated and you don't have to agree with them. I can root for Allie Hazelwood's The Love Hypothesis when it hits the New York Times bestseller list and still feel a twinge of real worry when it does. As far as E.L. James goes, I could do without her work in my life, frankly, but I can still appreciate the massive surge in popularity and promotion it gave to romance. I'm a woman with layers, see? When I planned this episode, I came up with a list of questions for people to answer about Twilight. You've heard a lot of those answers already. But one of the questions on that list went curiously unanswered. It was, if you could say anything to Stephanie Meyer, what would it be? Maybe no one else has anything to say to her. But I do. See, I would not be sitting here speaking to you without Stephanie. I would not be putting out a serial in February or up to my neck in rejections without Stephanie. I would not be who I am today without Stephanie. And we, you and I, listener, would not have the connection we do right now without Stephanie. My love of reading began later than most. I struggled with the humiliation of read-alouds and lagging years behind my classmates until I was about 12, when I discovered, first, fanfiction, which boasted, among many other virtues, a price tag of zero dollars and being almost entirely romance-focused. And then I found Allie Carter's I Tell You I Love You, But Then I'd Have to Kill You, which I slept with under my pillow for a year. It cracked open the traditionally published world for me in ways that I will always be grateful to her for. But writing, writing, the great love of my life came to me from the open hands of Stephanie Meyer. I'll never forget the lightning strike of that moment when I held Twilight in my hands and thought, I can do this too. Perhaps it's not the most flattering memory in hindsight. I promise it's not a slight against author or work when I tell you I thought, this looks easy. In fact, it's actually the opposite. To make a piece of literature accessible to even the most reticent of minds, to water the barren earth of insecurity with confidence, it's a gift beyond measure. I wrote my first novel when I was 13. It was Oh god, it was terrible, obviously, and in most ways a complete ripoff of Twilight. But it was a novel. In writing it, I learned what uh, advanced readers' copies are, and I learned the importance of a word count. I learned what a query letter was, how to properly format a manuscript. I learned how to scour the books I loved for hints on how to write better. I learned that this weird, wonderful thing was something I could do. Me, talentless, friendless, uninteresting. I could do this thing that brought me so much joy. Barring a segue into art school and illustration, I have never lost sight of that. Reading and writing sustain me. I've said it on the podcast before, but it's worth saying again right now. There are certain books that make me sit up in bed and think, damn, but I'm happy to be alive in this moment. To be here in this 
tiny sliver of cosmic time when I and this book exist simultaneously. Twilight was the very first book I can recall inspiring that feeling. It's not perfect. It has many, many problems that have caused real harm. TV crews trespassing on native land, for instance, to film the graves of elders and slap B-movie spooky music over it for a Twilight feature, to name one terrible example. And the legacy of Twilight cannot and should not be excised of valid criticism. Neither should Stephanie Meyer. Despite that, Twilight is here to stay. It is woven so tightly into the fabric of our cultural consciousness that I have my doubts about it ever truly disappearing. Twilight changed the world. It changed my world. Without Stephanie Meyer and Twilight, my life would be without the scaffolding of tender inspiration. Flat, pale, and most importantly, voiceless. So, thanks, Stephanie. I owe you one. Thank you for listening to the Twilight episode, the finale of our one-year anniversary event. A huge, enormous thank you goes out to everyone who sent in their thoughts on Twilight, as well as our music-making madman, Andrew Machado, for composing the music in this episode. You can find the link to his work in the show notes. And y'all, for real, wasn't the music pretty great? (laughs) If you'd like to support the podcast, you can follow us on social media at Kingdom Thirst everywhere, as well as join our Discord server and purchase our merch. Link in the notes. Speaking of, our special edition Thirsty First merch will only be up until the 31st, so get that while you can. And please, if you have a moment and a dollar to spare, Donate to the Quileute Move to Higher Ground Fund at mthg.org. That's mthg.org. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Kingdom of Thirst is a member of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find all of our episodes and tons of new podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.